We're hearing the Prelude and Fugue in C major, number one, from book two of The Well-Tempered Clavier by Johann Sebastian Bach. Glenn Gould is the pianist from this recording, released in April of 1968, four years after Glenn Gould gave up live concert performances for the recording studio and the technology involved there. What's fascinating is that Today, as we're listening to this music of Bach, created 53 years ago, a special recording of this performance has been traveling out into interstellar space for 43 years, 9 months, and 20 days on what is called the Golden Record, so prominently a part of the Voyager mission. NASA tells us the record is constructed of gold-plated copper and is 12 inches, that is 30 centimeters in diameter. The record's cover is aluminum and electroplated upon it is an ultra-pure sample of the isotope uranium-238. Uranium-238 has a half-life of billions of years. The records also had the inscription to the makers of music, all worlds, all times hand-etched on the surface. That from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Writer Paul Ely contends that Bach was technologically the most advanced musician of his era, a technician of the sacred. He served as organist, keyboardist, cantor, and music director. He was especially learned about the pipe organ, the most complex mechanical apparatus of his time. He built, repaired, and renovated pipe organs and put dozens of them to the test throughout Saxony and the regions. But there are good reasons to see him, rather, as an inventor, an artist whose career was rooted in the Baroque conception of inventio, drawn from classical rhetoric. Bach invented a musical instrument, the Lautenwerk, or lute harpsichord, and composed the two-part masterwork, The Well-Tempered Clavier, in part as an investigation of the nature of tuning or temperament. He wrote the two- and three-part inventions, short, tight, sparkling keyboard pieces, 15 to a set, each of which reaches a frontier of sublimity, then vanishes into thin air. Together, the two sets of inventions take less than an hour to play, but the notion of music as invention applies to Bach's vast body of music. As one of those scholar-performers, Lawrence Dreyfus, suggests, invention is the essential pattern of Bach's creative life. For Bach, an invention was an idea, a melody, a pattern, a contrapuntal motif, worth developing. Invention was also a term for the act of discovery and for the mechanism, the application of rules, the habits of art that made discovery come about. An invention was a strong foretaste of composition, a workable idea developed just to the point where it could be most fruitful and suggestive and delightful to others. That from the study Reinventing Bach by Paul Ely.
We're hearing here the Toccata in F major, BWV 540 by Bach. It's been called a perpetual motion machine at the start. It seems as if it might go on forever, like Voyager, perhaps. Performing here, Aram Basmajian on an organ built in the Lehigh Valley by the Allen Organ Company, an instrument that permits the organist to play music by Bach with a sound style or personality of the Arp Schnitger instruments of the North German School of Organ Building. Allen's sound engineers were able to record and analyze the tonal qualities of the existing Arp Schnitger organs and offer organists in the 21st century the opportunity to perform Bach with a characteristic tonal palette of the Baroque era. We're told Jerome Markowitz, founder of Allen Organ, not only invented the first fully electronic organ, but decades later was responsible for the world's first musical instrument using digital sampling. June 2021 marks a special anniversary in the history of Allen Organ, and we had a chance to speak by phone with Steve Markowitz, president of Allen Organ Company, about the milestone and about his father, Jerome Markowitz. This month will be the 50th anniversary of the introduction of the first musical instrument or any product to use digital sound. You tell us that that instrument, that's now in the Smithsonian Institution? The first one that was sold is actually in the Smithsonian Institution. That's correct. We'd love to meet your father. Was he a tinkerer when he was a little lad? Yes, he was a definite tinkerer. He was a youngest son, probably what you'd call in the vernacular a change-of-life baby, so his parents were quite elderly. And he was the only one born in the United States. The rest were immigrants or born outside the United States, his siblings. And so to a great extent, he was raised by his siblings. And those type of people tend to be very self-reliant in my estimation. And he had an early yearning for technology. And examples of that were that he was... Uh, a ham radio operator, which required not only technology of the ham radio itself, but you had to get a license, which included understanding and being able to interpret Morse code. So that is an early example. Another example is in the 1930s, he built his own television set. Now let's remember there were no television shows yet. So yes, tinkering might have been in New York and some of these things, but one of his sisters lived in Allentown, and his father had a plant north of Allentown, a textile-type plant. And so a lot of the activities actually did occur in the Lehigh Valley. And it's fascinating to know that with this interest in electronics and tinkering, as we call it, he was able to have insights into how he might develop things that would benefit the world at large, right? It wasn't just that the family could watch the television. He was always thinking about innovations. Yes, and I think the best example of that is how he entered the musical instrument business. He was a student at uh, Muhlenberg College in Allentown. And at that time, that was a Lutheran college, and at that time, all students had to go to chapel on Sunday, irrespective of your religious background. And in those days, people didn't balk at that kind of stuff. They just did it. And when my father went there, he heard the pipe organ in the chapel. And that was a marvelous experience for him. 
and that set his mind moving. He understood vacuum tube technology as they were used in radios and decided to create a technology that could create musical sound using that technology of the day. He was really on, again, the cutting edge. Yes, even though we would look at it today and look at those things and sort of chuckle because their simplicity compared to what's going on today, in that world, it was very complicated stuff. And in fact, while he was not a formally educated engineer, he had enough technology capabilities that during the war, he worked for the government on radar in Hawaii. So he was compelled. He loved sound. He made a TV, so that's visual and sound, but it was the organ that grabbed him. That's correct. There was a connection of two things. The first I've already told you about, listening to that pipe organ in the Muhlenberg Chapel. The second experience that was related to that was that he went to a nightclub in New York City in the 1930s, and he heard one of the first Hammond organs. And the Hammond organ was an electromechanical instrument that what enthused him about it was that it was portable compared to a pipe organ. But it could not make pipe organ sounds. It was for popular music, jazz. So his goal was to come up with a technology that would make more traditional sounds like a pipe organ much less expensive and complicated than a windblown pipe organ. Well, we know that Edison, for example, tried a lot of things until he got the right filament for his light bulb. Do you know whether Dad tried different things until he hit on the right thing that would do just what he had hoped it would do and bring the sound out that he wanted? Well, uh, later on, what you said is entirely correct. Early on, he hit on something that worked fairly quickly. He understood radio technology, and there's an oscillator in a radio that allows you to tune the radio to stations. And if you look at the old radios, they had knobs that you actually turned. Okay, so he came up with a way of stabilizing the tone, that oscillator, so that you could tune each oscillator to the notes in the keyboard or in the octave, and therefore make a musical instrument. That patent that he created came fairly simple to him in the 1937 time period. Now, for the next decades, he spent his entire life manipulating that technology and later digital technology so that they could exactly replicate the sound of a pipe organ. We know we can go to some of the great cathedrals around the world, and there are wind chests and multiple pipes and the size and the complicated nature of the tuning and making sure everything is just right. It all creates a magnificent sound, and we know that. We know that your dad was swept away by the sound of a pipe organ in a chapel space. What were these developments making possible in the world of organ playing? Well, it did two things. First of all, for those large churches, those cathedrals that you talked about, they had the space and the wherewithal to have a pipe organ and to maintain it. But churches, especially in the United States in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, they were small with small congregations. They didn't have a space for a pipe organ nor the financial wherewithal to purchase one of any size. So his invention allowed a electronic instrument to create the musical effects that those churches wanted. In addition, it allowed these instruments to be placed in people's homes as practice instruments. Well, what about then the digital development that we're celebrating this month with you? What was the distinction then, and how did he get there? Okay. 
by the mid-1960s, he was, I think, likely to be considered the preeminent analog tone engineer in the world. And he had spent thousands and thousands of hours right after World War II in the 1946 era trying to perfect a sound with analog technology. He had come to the conclusion that he had taken this technology as far as it had gone. Even though it morphed from tubes to transistors, they couldn't precisely produce complex sounds of a pipe organ. They produced nice musical sounds, and thousands of organs were installed with these nice sounds. But they still didn't accurately reproduce the sounds as a pipe organ. At that time, another thing was occurring that was completely outside of his purview. President Kennedy said in 1961 he committed to putting a man on the moon and bringing him back safely, just as important. That required advances in technology and integrated circuits that did not exist at that time. One of the companies that created these circuits that had the technology to make these very large integrated circuits was Rockwell. By the middle of 1960, 1966, they knew that the moon program, the Apollo program, would be finished by the early 1970s and they needed to continue a revenue stream. They hoped to be able to sell integrated circuits to commercial companies to make up for that shortfall. One of the ideas that a Rockwell scientist came up with is sound could be produced digitally. They went around to all the organ manufacturers, not Allen at that time, the big ones, Hammond, Kahn, uh, Wurlitzer, etc., to try to make a joint venture because they did not know how to create a musical instrument or to market it. They all rejected it because it was going to cost $2 million to fund the project. They finally came to my father sort of as an afterthought because we were a small company in the scheme of things. And he recognized the potential of this digital technology, entered into the joint venture agreement with Rockwell, and that led to the introduction three years later in 1971. He was able then to refine that until three years later, as you say, he could say proudly, listen. That's correct. It has to be understood that when this organ was introduced, it was not only the first product to use digital sound, it was one of the first commercial products to ever use these advanced integrated circuits. In fact, there were 22 of them required on the large board in the organ. At that time, it was considered a supercomputer in power. And it would have only been possible at that time with the combination of two things, a very large company with technology like Rockwell getting together with an organ builder to fund the project and to do the scientific work necessary. It took three years to come out with the product. And all along, he's got to think about what wood to use. There is still an aesthetic part of the whole thing, too. Where did the first one wind up? There was a church in Bethlehem that it ended up going to, and they replaced it about 30 years later with a newer Allen organ. And the other complexity is you started mentioning some of them. You still had to make the wood cabinets, the keyboards, et cetera, et cetera. The problem was that our plant had at that time over 500 employees, and they were all dedicated to making organs with the older analog technology. Two years prior to the introduction and the successful completion of the first digital organ, the factory had to be committed to change its production to this new digital technology was a completely different paradigm. So if that digital organ didn't work, uh, the company actually was at risk at that point. You'd say, wouldn't you, that your father was a visionary? Yes, I think that is a fair statement. Mm -hmm. And so the organ did work. 
what was it the forerunner of today as this technology would ultimately lead to CDs and MP3 and MP4s and all of the things that we take for granted today? Well, the first manifestation of that is that uh, the world recognized the importance of this product, the technology in the product. There's the Industrial Research Group, IR 100 Award, given for the top 100 products of the year. And this product was recognized as one of those in 1972. In Chicago, my father received an award. So the world started recognizing the first manifestation was musical instrument companies realized that in the future, all musical instruments would be digital. In 1971, there was not one digital instrument before Allen. So those companies quickly realized it. We owned the pioneering patents, and we licensed most of the large companies at that time. It's fascinating that it was an organ that did this. I don't think we're aware of the role of the organ in terms of the world of digital sound, are we? No, that we're not, and I think it's a story that needs to be told because everybody knows where the light bulb came from, what the genesis of it. People understand where the genesis of mass production for cars came from, and I can go on and on. The reason people don't know the genesis of uh, digital sound and where it came from is because it started in this niche church organ market and uh, where the company, which still exists today, just stuck to its business of making better organs every year. And by the time it morphed out to consumer goods, which, by the way, didn't even start until a decade later, until it got into more mass production products in the mid-1980s or so, People assume that some large corporation, most likely in Japan, because at that time they were the dominant consumer products company, developed this technology. And while they did improve on it and did lots of great things to it, the basic technology came from that digital organ. And you are able to give us demonstrations side by side and say, listen, listen, use your own ears as a standard, right? That's correct. And and clearly, the early digital organs were substantially improved over the analog technology they replaced, but compared to what we're able to do today. And it's funny how that relationship has gone full circle. In the early days of digital technology, we had to make custom circuits that were only used for our organs. As the technology morphed into consumer goods, cell phones, etc., MP3 players, then the integrated circuits became so sophisticated that now we use the generic circuits to produce our product. You all have organs around the world, really, don't you? Yes. Please, if you would, tell us that story about the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, that is, it was, to me, one of the most fantastic stories of my second part of my adult life. We rented an organ to the Sistine Choir Chapel Choir when they did a tour of the United States. I think it was about 2017. And uh, the Monsignor, after he heard this organ played with his choir, he happened to be an organist, he contacted us and said, geez, I would like one uh, for the choir. So uh, we, we made that arrangement, and we prepared a special organ for them, not knowing exactly where it's going to go. And we shipped it over there, and I and an associate, my wife happened to go with me, we went over to install this organ, not knowing where it was going to be installed. We get there. And we get through the security, and lo and behold, we're setting this organ up in St. Peter's itself. That was, uh, I have photos of it, and, and it was just unbelievable. The Monsignor came down. 
well, first of all, they took us into the basilica, and there's our crates of the organs right up front there. And we didn't know exactly what was going on. We uncrated the organs, started setting them up. The Monsignor came to me, and he said, uh, Mr. Markowitz, we're going to plug this into the PA system, and we're going to try it out in the basilica, and if it works, we're going to use it Christmas Eve. And that year it was used for the Christmas Eve Mass. You must have been on tender hooks because, again, it's that sense, well, will it work in the basilica? <laughs> oh, absolutely. We had no idea. Fortunately, we prepared the instrument so it could be hooked up to a PA system. But we thought it was going to be, quite frankly, in the, in the Sistine Chapel, maybe. They have a little pipe organ there. Maybe it would be in a basement, in a practice studio. We had no idea. And I understand you're not an organist. No, um, sort of like my father, our, our strength is organ building. Now, my father could play music by ear, but over the centuries, really, some of the better organ builders were not organists because it's two different talents required, one to play the instrument and one to do the meticulous work required to voice it and, and to get exactly what you want. We have some samples of music performed on Allen organs, and you know the organist. I believe they were played by um, my associate, my vice president of sale, Aram Basmajan. There's an interesting backstory in that too. Uh, Aram Basmajan is a you know relatively young man, and during the time the digital organ was being worked on, his grandfather, whose name was Milt Nelson, was our chief engineer at Allen Organ. So <laughs> it goes full cycle. Allen has a number of those lovely grace notes. Now, other than going into various churches where an Allen organ is, do you all at your plant have facilities? Could people make an appointment and say, I'd really like to hear an Allen organ? Yes, we do, and we just opened up recently after the COVID challenges. <laughs> is there something that you're looking ahead to that you're saying, that was 50 years ago. Now, what's on the horizon? Anything that you want to give us a heads up about? Yeah, we actually just introduced some rather remarkable new technology called Apex, and there are some clips uh, with some demonstrations on our website that uh, are getting rave reviews. And uh, we're looking forward to doing some spectacular installations with Apex technology. Steve Markowitz, president of Allen Organ Company in the Lehigh Valley, speaking with us about Allen Organ and his father, Jerome Markowitz, and the 50th anniversary this month, June 2021, of the introduction of the world's first musical instrument utilizing digital sampling, developed by Jerome Markowitz. The first organ of the kind was sold is now in the Smithsonian Institution. Allen is marking the technological breakthrough by publishing a book dedicated to the company. It's titled, Since 1939, A History of Allen Organ Company, celebrating 50 years of digital sound, 1971 to 2021. The book commemorates Allen's 50th year of digital sound with the introduction of digital sampling and the first digital organ introduced to the world in 1971. Plus, it is dedicated to Allen's founder, Jerome Markowitz, and the employees and customers that have been part of Allen's family through eight decades. That's since 1939, a history of Allen Organ Company celebrating 50 years of digital sound, 1971 to 2021. 
For more information on the web, alanorgan.com, alanorgan.com. And the Allen Organ International Sales Headquarters is located in McCungie, Pennsylvania. And there is a hall titled Octave Hall. It's a 400-seat auditorium where Allen organs are demonstrated and public concerts are held each year during the spring and fall. And that, of course, is subject to COVID protocols. The Allen International Headquarters also includes the Jerome Markowitz Memorial Center, a museum chronicling Allen's history. On display are many instruments which represent technological milestones in development of the pipeless organ. The museum can be toured by appointment Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Allen Organ International in McCungie, Pennsylvania. And for more information on the web, allenorgan.com, allenorgan.com. <laughs>